I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. Last week we started a new sermon series that we're calling Believe, because that is the most frequently repeated word throughout John's gospel, believe. And John, when he tells us his entire purpose for writing this gospel in John chapter 20, he says, these things have been written down so that you may believe that the Christ is Jesus and that you may have life in his name. So we're going to be in John chapter 1 beginning in verse 19 this morning. You know, at this time of year, lots of people begin making resolutions. Maybe you have a few of your own on your mind as you think about a new year. Uh, seems like that's a common advertising slogan, something like, new year, new you. Resolutions are an indication that we all have this deep sense that there's room to grow. There's room to change. We aren't yet all that we ought to be. So, if you could improve your life by removing one thing from it and adding one thing to it, what would you change? My guess is that that question prompts a few thoughts. I could use a little less of this and a little more of that. It might be something about your situation, something about your environment, Maybe less uh, busyness and stress on the calendar, maybe less weight, maybe more money. What would it be for you? What would you change? Would it be something about yourself personally, your, your personality, your appearance, your, your character? What's one thing in your life you need less of? According to Scripture, John 1, our text this morning, there's one thing that must be removed from every one of us, and one thing that must be added to every one of us, and all of it has been provided for us already by God in the person of Jesus Christ. So look with me at John 1, beginning in verse 19. This is God's word. It's authoritative, it's true, it's clear, it's sufficient, and we read it like no other book. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we believe that this is your word inspired by your spirit, that the testimony of John the Baptist was spirit-inspired, spirit-authorized, that he bore witness to Jesus, and that his testimony about Jesus has been recorded and preserved for our benefit this morning, so that by hearing these words and believing them, we too may behold the Lamb of God, We want to behold you in all of your glory. And so we pray once again this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to to see you. Open our ears to hear your word. Cause us to hear and receive and believe. And may we be changed, transformed, supernaturally changed by the work of your spirit and your word as we believe it this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. You may have heard recently Elon Musk, who's the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, and I don't know how many other innovative companies, uh, he recently unveiled plans to build these underground tunnels. He, He calls them underground highways for cars. Your car would go into an elevator, be lowered down, and then you could just take off as fast as you want, no speed limits in these underground highways for cars. Only electric cars because couldn't have all the fumes and everything. Um, But the reason for this, I mean, this is going to change the world. Elon Musk uh, says that this is his solution to what he describes as soul-destroying traffic. He says, traffic is like acid on the soul. So that's his solution. It's going to revolutionize the world. As I think about that, I think, well, that'll work until everybody's driving those cars and trying to use those tunnels, and then all the traffic will be underground. So it works for now for a select few, but Elon Musk comes out with these incredible unveilings, announcements, the next Tesla electric vehicle. We we live in a tech-obsessed world, and we dream of a better life and a better future, and for so many people technology is the object of that hope. What's going to change our lives? What's going to make our lives better? The next big thing. And so every year, Apple unveils a new iPhone. And this one is going to be awesome, unlike any of the other ones. And meanwhile, Samsung just keeps saying, the next big thing is already here. It's already been here. Don't worry. It's over here. But no inventor and no billionaire entrepreneur has ever uttered such earth-shaking, history-shaping words as John the Baptist does in this text. 
when he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No technological breakthrough in the history of humanity comes anywhere close to doing for humanity what the Lamb of God did. Which is amazing when you think about all the incredible advancements that have benefited mankind throughout history. Nothing comes close, not the wheel, not the printing press, not vaccinations, not refrigeration, not the automobile, not the smartphone or the internet. Human inventions can improve quality of life and and maybe increase life expectancy up to a point. But no human invention can remove the one thing from your life that must be removed if you are ever going to experience any kind of actual life. Life, as John's gospel describes it, to the full, abundant life. No human science or medicine or innovation can take away the sin of the world. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Look at Psalm 49. 7 through 9, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What can we give in exchange for our souls? John has a lot to say about Jesus in this text. The Christology here is deep and it is rich, but his main claim about Jesus, he repeats it twice on two separate occasions. According to the the narrative, actually on two separate days. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verses 35 through 36, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. This is a momentous unveiling in the history of the world. Behold, that's the main point of this text to cause us to behold the Lamb of God. Just consider the sacrifice foreshadowed by John's claim about Jesus. The Lamb of God is an ominous term to apply to someone. It implies substitution. It implies sacrifice and death. As early as Genesis 4, Abel is offering to God the the firstborn of his flock as a sacrifice. In Genesis 22, 8, God tells Abraham to take Isaac with him up Mount Moriah and to offer his only son as a sacrifice. And as they go, Isaac noticed that there's no sacrificial lamb and he asks his father about it, to which Abraham replies, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son. In Exodus 12, the Israelites slaughtered the Passover lamb and they applied the blood to the doorposts of their houses so that the destroyer might pass by them. And in Isaiah 53, 7, the Messiah himself is described as a lamb led to the slaughter. The title lamb of God implies death. So to what extent John the Baptist knew all that was in store for Jesus, we're not quite sure, but he does speak prophetically here. Jesus came to die. 
as Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Consider the, the scandal of this claim John makes about Jesus. It is audacious when you think about it. John the Baptist points at another human being, a human being, and he says, that man right there is going to take away the sin of the world. Listen to Donald McLeod. We need to be clear where the scandal of the cross lies. In the prima facie absurdity that a crucified first century Jewish criminal is the savior of the world and that his cross was the actual instrument of that salvation. Side by side with that lies another scandal. The assumption that all human beings from Francis of Assisi to Joseph Stalin are sinners in need of salvation in the first place. And as if this were not enough, the further scandalous idea that God is not all indulgent love, but is dreadfully provoked by our sin and needs to be pacified. There's a lot of scandal wrapped up in this claim, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if taking away the sin of the world doesn't land on you like it's a big deal or you have a hard time feeling the the force of that, let's elaborate on what the sin of the world is because nobody sins in the abstract. The sin of the world is not an abstract thing. We all sin in particulars with our hands, with our mouths, with our eyes, with our tone of voice. We sin in particulars. And so Jesus came to take away the guilt of specific sin. To take away the sin of the world means Jesus came to take away all of the evil, all of the offense, all of the guilt of blasphemers and idol worshipers and the ungodly and the self-righteous, and the anxious, and the discontent, and the ungrateful, and the proud, and the selfish, and the indulgent, the impatient, and the irritable, the envious, the obscene. He came to take away the guilt of cheaters, and liars, and gossips, and thieves, and drunkards, and abusive parents, and rebellious children, and even rapists, and murderers, and child molesters, and abortionists, and extortionists, and embezzlers, and human traffickers, and porn users, and fornicators, and homosexuals, and adulterers. Jesus came to take away your sin. And my sin, the sin of the world, he came to take it away, to remove it. Greg reminded us last week that God's grace is so much more than cutting us some slack. Grace is not, hey, everyone makes mistakes and everybody deserves a free pass, so here's yours. Jesus didn't come to pat us on the back and reassure us, hey, don't worry, God's not all that bothered by your sin. You're doing great. You're awesome inside of yourself already. Just keep believing in yourself as our culture continues to tell us. He came to take away real guilt, real failure, real sin from real sinners and to remove it. The theological word for this is expiation to cover it, 
to carry it away, to bear it himself so that it's gone. He came to remove our sin. And when sin is removed, then God himself is, another big theological word, propitiated. His wrath, his just wrath against sin is satisfied. There's no more wrath from God that remains on us because it has been poured out in full on a blameless substitute. Sin is the one thing that must be removed from you if there's going to be any meaningful, lasting change in you in 2019 or 2020 or ever for the rest of your life. Sin is the root of all of our problems. Your, your greatest problem is not someone or something outside of you. It's, it's sin inside of you. And your sinful responses to your circumstances and your surroundings and the people in your life. And so if your first thought when I ask, what would you remove from your life if you could remove one thing to make it better? Whatever that thing is, just stop and think for a second about what would it look like to change your sinful response to that thing first, if that thing isn't yet removed. What would that look like? The implication of this is that you don't need some new communication technique in your marriage. You you don't need a job change primarily. You don't just need, you know, if I just had a better boss or a nicer car. You need the Lamb of God to take away your sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And think about it in this context. In John the Baptist's day, Israel was waiting, waiting expectantly for the promised Messiah. People knew the promises. They knew Messiah was coming, and they were hoping, and many people in this time were specifically hoping for a Messiah who would be like King David. I mean, a military general, a conquering king, a political leader. We want a Messiah like that who's going to come and deliver us from our Roman oppressors. And so what they were probably hoping for was some announcement like, behold, the conquering king, not behold the Lamb of God who's going to die. And yet what they needed was just that, a sin-atoning, guilt-removing, heart-transforming Messiah. You see, in the Old Testament, it's clear that the blessings and the curses for covenant faithfulness or covenant disobedience, oppression, the oppression that Israel was experiencing under the Romans was just the result of their rebellion against God. Oppression by foreign kings was one of the curses God warned them of if they were not faithful to him. So they didn't primarily need a new political leader to solve their political problem. They needed their sins to be removed so that they could be reconciled to God and then everything else would result as a trickle down from right relationship with God. Atonement gets at the root of every one of our problems, which is why for all of us who treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know and we believe and we testify and we we intend to keep telling those around us that hope for change in America doesn't come from a politician or from the next big omnibus bill. It first comes by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. 
Only when our sins are atoned for through Christ will anything change. I mean, I hope and I pray and I long to see the day in my lifetime when no more abortions are performed in Sioux Falls. I long for that. But I know that what has to happen, even if legislation is passed or even if a more conservative Supreme Court does something, what has to happen is everybody who's living in sexual immorality and everybody who would rather abort their children than keep them or give them up for adoption, that sin has to be dealt with and it can only be dealt with by the Lamb of God. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope for our society. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an unveiling John announces. Consider the the scope of his claim when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John does not mean that everyone universally and without exception is now automatically reconciled to God, but he does mean that God has provided the only sacrifice that will ever be necessary to atone for the sins of all people, whether Jews or Gentiles. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, as Romans 10.13 says. That should be a source of tremendous peace and hope and encouragement and assurance to you. There should never be any thought, any doubt, any question in your mind whether the death of Jesus Christ is for you. I know that that's a question that a lot of people deal with. I know some of you deal with that. Did Jesus die for me? Was his death enough for my sins? I get that he died for other people, but does it count for me? Yes, There is no other sacrifice than this, and it was for the sins of the world. And so come to him. Behold him, as John tells you to do. Trust him. Cling to him. Hope in him as your Savior, the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And this is the truth that energizes our passion as a church for the gospel, our passion for missional living, our passion for church planting and frontier missions. Every man and woman and child must be told this good news that God himself has provided the sin-canceling, wrath-removing sacrifice. And all must be invited to come to him. There goes the rest of my sermon. (laughs) So if you're a member of Emmaus Road Church, then, then you're a co-laborer together with us in this mission. We, we want to give every resident of Sioux Falls and the surrounding communities repeated opportunities to, to hear the gospel of Jesus and to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're part of that by having gospel conversations with those that God has brought into your life because we believe the Lamb of God died to take away the sin of the world. So how could one man take away the sin of the world. Jesus is able to take away your sin and my sin and the sin of the world because he is God. When this investigative team from Jerusalem insisted that John tell them who he was, he quoted Isaiah 40 verse 3, which says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Notice, while I pick up my papers here, that Lord is all caps, L-O-R-D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, you know that is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal name for God. 
God's own covenantal name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush, all caps, prepared the way for Yahweh. Not just the way to him, but the way for him. A highway for our God. God himself is coming. That's what this announcement means. And so when John quotes it, he's saying, God is coming. I'm the voice preparing the way for God himself to come. And so he's claiming about Jesus. This is God come to us just as he promised he would do. John testifies about Jesus and says, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. There was a rabbi who taught that disciples of a teacher were to do everything a slave would do except untie the sandal. That's the lowest thing. That's for slaves. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do a slave's job for him. And yet John himself is a remarkable person. And so the gap between John and Jesus should be striking to us when he says about himself, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. I mean, John was a man who was prophesied about in the Old Testament. How many of us can say there are prophecies in the Old Testament about us? There were prophecies about John. John, according to Luke 1, was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That's remarkable. John was sent by God himself. According to Jesus in Matthew 11, among all those born of women, which would be all of us, there is none greater than John. So John is a big deal. And yet he says about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. Why? Because he outranks me. He ranks before me, he says in verse 30. Why does he outrank John? Because he was before me. What a claim. He was before me. This is a way of saying he is the eternal God, just like John's gospel tells us in the opening verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is God. But that's not all John has to say about Jesus. John says Jesus is the one who baptizes people with the Holy Spirit, which is another way of claiming Jesus is God. When John says Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, he's saying he's God because everywhere the Old Testament speaks of the Spirit being poured out on God's people, God is the one who says he's going to pour out the Spirit. Joel 2, 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I, God, will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Ezekiel 39, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Who can give the Spirit of God except for God himself? And John points at him and says, he is going to pour out the Holy Spirit on the people of God because he is God. And so, again, this is the basis for all of our confidence. When we are aware of the guilt of our sin, Jesus is able to atone for all our sin because he is God. I mean, this is such deep hope for humanity. It's not just the, the cathartic hair petting. We're all great. They're there. Everything's fine. You're already wonderful. This is not some system of self-atonement. Just, you know, avoid animal products and drive electric cars and use all the right hashtags to show you're part of the right movements and, you know, atone for yourself. 
God himself has provided himself as the sacrifice. And surely the eternal God, infinite in worth and glory, is sufficient in himself to pay for the sin of the world. So we need our sins removed if there's going to be any lasting change in us. But we need more than that. We need the Spirit of God to be poured out on us as well. And that's the hope that this text gives us. Jesus is God's anointed Messiah who generously gives the very Spirit of God to all who believe. He himself was anointed by the Spirit of God. That, that's what the title Christ means. That's a, from the Greek word for anointed one. The Hebrew word is Messiah, which means anointed one. He himself is anointed by the Spirit, as John testifies in verse 33, when he says, I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he. He's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John testifies about him. He is anointed by the Spirit, which is what all of the Messianic prophecies foretold. Won't go through all of them, but just look at one. Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus is God's Son, chosen by God the Father, empowered by God the Spirit to accomplish God's plan to save the world. And it is God's plan and it is God's good pleasure through Jesus to give you the very Spirit of God. John says about him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's what you and I need in our lives if there's going to be any lasting change in us. We need the Spirit of God. What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? I think that John 7, later on in John's gospel, is an insightful text. One of, I think, the most key foundational texts to understanding the work of the Spirit. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus himself speaks about the work of the spirit as thirst quenching. Whoever thirsts, let him come to me. And he's talking about the Spirit. So he's not just saying literally whoever's thirsty for water, come to me and drink the Spirit instead of water. The body needs bread and water, but the soul also has thirsts. And the promise of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit will quench those heart thirsts, those heart hungers. Whatever your soul craves, the only way for your heart to be satisfied is through the outpouring of the Spirit of God. That's what the Spirit does. He satisfies hearts. I love this definition of the baptism of the Spirit from Steve Fuller. I think I've quoted this before. He says, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural experience 
occurring at conversion in which the Holy Spirit enables us to see and feel Jesus' glory so much that our hearts are overwhelmingly satisfied, quenched in Him. Seeing the glory of Jesus, not just in a way that flesh and blood can see, but having the eyes of our hearts opened up so that we behold the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus, and our hearts are actually satisfied. That's what we need. It's supernatural because the Holy Spirit has to cause that. It's not a matter of IQ, intelligence, effort, achievement on our part. It's a work of the Spirit to cause us to see Jesus in this way. And Fuller says it's an experience because you actually experience your heart desires being satisfied by Christ alone. We don't believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is some second level experience that happens just to some elite Christians at some point after their conversion, manifested by speaking in tongues. And then you've got this elite group of Christians who have the Spirit and the others are just like, well, I hope I get that someday too. And we believe that this is what the Spirit does. He causes us to see Jesus and behold His glory and be satisfied in Him. And that that begins at conversion. When you trust in Jesus, you catch that in John 7, Jesus said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. This is for everyone who believes in Jesus. So if you are feeling spiritually dull or lethargic, apathetic or stale this morning, or, or maybe you're just totally blind to the glory of Jesus and you, you've never beheld the glory of Jesus in your life and all of this is foreign to you and boring and the primary thought in your mind is how much longer is this going to take, then you need the work of the Spirit in your heart. And that's what God is offering you so generously Only the Spirit of Jesus can reveal Jesus to us. Flesh and blood cannot behold Jesus as glorious. John told the people, among you stands one you do not know. He even says twice here, I myself did not know him. Not that he didn't know Jesus personally. They were cousins. I'm sure they knew each other. But he's saying, I didn't even know he was the Messiah until what? The Spirit of God identified him as the Messiah to me. How did John come to recognize Jesus was the Messiah? The Spirit of God descended on him, just as God had told John would happen. John introduces us to this theme in the beginning of his gospel when he says, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. One writer says, to know the carpenter's son from Nazareth is the son of God is not something of which flesh and blood is capable. This knowledge can only be a gift, not an achievement. It's a gift. The Spirit showed John Jesus was the Christ and God's pleasure, God's purpose is to give you that same sight, that same taste of the glory of Jesus He does that by his spirit through his word. His word right here. This testimony about Jesus. That's why John came testifying about him so that we would hear that testimony and believe it. And in hearing it and believing it, 
that our hearts would be satisfied supremely with the glory of Jesus. John says, I'm just a voice crying out, pointing to him. John is the the herald. He's the, the forerunner, the roadie who gets it all ready. He's not the main act. He's pointing us to the main act, Jesus. His entire mission was to bear witness to Jesus. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed How much more clear could it get? He is just confessing, I'm not the Christ. That's the Christ. Look at him. Behold him. Verse 32, John bore witness. Verse 34, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Twice he cries out, behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 31, for this purpose I came that he might be revealed to Israel. Do you see him as glorious? Do you behold in Jesus, the Lamb of God? Do you behold the glory of God and the glory of his grace in making provision for your sin and the sin of the world so that you might be reconciled to God and changed forever? Do you know him? Do you receive him by faith? This is how God changes us. He takes away our sin And then he gives us his spirit. That's what he promised in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, the new covenant promise was, I will cleanse you from all your sin, take away your heart of stone, and I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. This is good news for every sinner. Good news for this world. Good news for our city This is the message that we have been entrusted with. And so let's tell the world that the Lamb of God who takes away our sin has come.